Well, welcome everybody to Tales of Love and History. My name is Philip Bullock, and I have the great privilege to serve as Director of Torch, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. It's my great pleasure and honour this evening to be able to welcome James Ivory to Oxford as Torch Visiting Professor. Mr Ivory is a multiple Academy Award-nominated filmmaker, prolific director, writer and producer. There are many ways one might describe his extensive oeuvre, but at its heart is a powerful commitment to telling stories that reflect the profound individuality of his characters, while simultaneously finding common ground with a wide range of diverse audiences. James Ivory started his career as a documentary filmmaker before beginning his nearly six-decade journey in narrative filmmaking with The Householder, 1963, a film that also began his decades-long partnership with producer Ismail Merchant and screenwriter Ruth Pravajavala. Among his films are Morris, 1987, which won the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival, and three films for which he received Best Director Oscar nominations, A Room with a View, 1985, Howard's End, 1992, and The Remains of the Day, 1993. Most recently, he wrote the screenplay for Luca Guadignano's adaptation of André Asiman's novel, Call Me By Your Name, for which he was awarded the 2018 Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, and for which he won the BAFTA and the Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. This evening, Mr Ivory will be in conversation with three outstanding academics, each of whom has made major contributions to the study of history and literature, of how we write and think about lives, and how we reflect and incorporate the breadth of human experience into our scholarly research. In alphabetical order, they are Catherine Harlow, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Reading. Dr Harlow is best known for her work on the German classicist and art historian Johann Joachim Winkelmann, and she is currently the recipient of a British Academy Fellowship, as part of which she is writing a study of Winkelmann's love letters. We have Jennifer Inglehart, Professor of Latin at the University of Durham. She has a long-standing interest in Latin poetry, as well as in questions of how later cultures have responded to the phenomenon of Roman homosexuality. Her book, Masculine Plural, Queer Classics, Sex and Education, has just been published by OUP. We also have Richard Parkinson, Professor of Egyptology here at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of the Queen's College. His main research interests lie in ancient Egyptian poetry, as well as in issues of performance practice, cultural power and sexuality. He has also published on LGBTQ histories across world cultures, including A Little Gay History, Desire and Diversity Across the World. Mr Ivory's visit would not have been possible without the generosity and cooperation of a number of our partner institutions. We're grateful to Curzon Cinemas for showing an entire season of Merchant Ivory films. Thanks too to the Queen's College for kindly hosting Mr Ivory during his stay here, and to the Ashmolean Museum, which is currently showing No Offence, an exhibition exploring LBGTQ plus histories. Thanks to all of these organisations for being so willing to collaborate with us at Torch, and I'd like to ask, uh, add my very personal thanks to Vicky McGuinness and the entire team at Torch for dealing with all of the practical arrangements. Torch's headline theme in 2018 is Humanities and Identities, and we're very pleased to be able to feature today's event as part of our programming. We're indebted to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for helping us to realise our work on diversity, inclusivity and equality in numerous ways. James Ivory's visit also represents an early manifestation of our headline theme for 2019, which will be Humanities and Performance, and which will celebrate Oxford's place in the world of culture and the creative arts. If you'd like to know more about Torch and our activities, please do visit our website and sign up for our regular newsletter. Finally, a word about the format of this evening. Mr Ivory will be in conversation with Catherine, Jennifer and Richard for around an hour, and there'll be plenty of time for you to ask questions thereafter, both to Mr Ivory and to other members of the panel. So if you'd like to join me in welcoming this evening's speakers. Thank you for being with us. Um, and I'll start off with the inevitable question to get rid of one stereotype <clears throat> out, of, out of the way. Um, your films are often wrongly thought of as being quintessentially English, English heritage. And Merchant Ivory, of course, was a rather diverse trio. And I wonder if you'd say something about how culturally diverse you felt you were. Well, I... I, I well, I... My, I started out in Venice, and then uh, make, making my very first film, uh, 
uh, about Venice, this, uh, telling the story of Venice through, in terms, well, as various artists uh, of different nationalities had shown Venice. And then not long after that, I began to make films in India. And I kept on doing that for more than a decade. Um, and then I made some films in America. <laughs> and then finally I came to England and, and um, with Ian Forster. And they, they are the ones, those are the films which make me seem like uh, sometimes an English director to people who don't know I'm not English. Um, I'm happy that they're thought to be quintessentially English. Uh, it would be horrible if they were not thought that. <laughs> so, and horrible to Forster. So, um, is that sort of an answer? In indeed. Okay. How, how many, what proportion of your films are to do with English history? It's, it's quite small. Well, there are f uh, four, really, and unless you want to count the Golden Bowl, uh, which is about rich Americans in England, but that's not quite the same thing, mm -hmm. Henry James's Golden Ball. So there are four, four or three films by Forster and, and one film by uh, Ishiguro, The Remains of the Day. And I think that pretty much it. That was it. No. Well, thank you. Um, and the word heritage is not well, one that you was, feel that comfortable was a, with. Uh, yeah, many of our films are called, well, all the English films are called heritage films. And I wondered, well, whose heritage are they talking about? Uh, they must mean an English heritage, because it, wouldn't, it wasn't my heritage, and, and, uh, or our heritage. I mean, Ruth was uh, born in Germany, uh, lived in England for a long time, and then married an Indian and moved to India. Ismail was uh, a Muslim, a uh, young Indian uh, from Bombay, um, who was partly educated in America, and I'm from the West Coast, of, from the state of Oregon. So I, it wasn't my heritage, or our heritage, but it seemed to be they were all dumped into this thing of, her, they were called heritage films, and uh, in, a, in a way that was not uh, particularly complimentary. And I was bridled when I read that, and I still do. That's nice. Well, now we have Are we cleared dealt that with up? that. Yes, <laughs> we can now move on to the real questions. Okay, let's get on with it. <laughs> I guess another thing we think about, apart from the quintessentially English, um, leave it behind, when we think about merchant ivory films is, is the kind of rich visual texture and indeed the beauty of the films um, and the attention to detail. There's such an attention in the sets, in the costuming. Um, I know you've called it scholarly. Um, other people have called it archaeological. Um, could you say a bit more about how important that is, is to you and why it's there? I think if you're doing a period film and based on a known, even if it's not based on a work from some period, but if it's set in the past, I think it needs to be exactly right. I mean, and I'm not the only one that's maniacal about that. Lots of directors are, even more than I am. Um, but I think that's very important. I, I think uh, uh, that's really part of the texture of, of the story, a very important part of it. And, and if you don't have it, uh, and if it's not right, it's, um, well, it's disappointing to me anyway. It would be. Um, we can get more, we'll get into this a bit more. You always talk about our films. Um, I wondered to what extent Merchant Ivory Productions had a, a family feel about it. it um, yes, they, I, I, I can't help but think of them as being our films. I mean, they wouldn't exist. Uh, the films that you all know uh, and have seen, they wouldn't exist except as, a, as something made by three people. And we, we, we really function a bit like the American government. Uh, mm. Could you expand on that yes. comment, yes. <laughs> But not, not the current one. Not, uh, well, even the current no, no, no. one. No, not the current one. Um, I'm the president, and Ismail, <laughs> Ismail was the Congress, and Ruth Javala was the Supreme Court. And that, we had our duties and our responsibilities and our particular way of looking at things, and sometimes 
Uh, and we, we couldn't get into each other's territory too much. I mean, uh, each was supreme in their own area. And that's, that's how we worked, and that's how we thought. And, and uh, for instance, I was never, ever allowed to get involved in the, anything financial. Uh, when Ismail was doing all his wheeling and dealing and putting the films together. In fact, I was not allowed to come to the meetings because I might say something wrong. <laughs> and uh, we, wouldn't get, we wouldn't make the deal um, like that. And, and at the same time, Ruth never felt that, uh, she never wanted to come on the set. She was never there while we were shooting. She hated going on the set. She was always afraid she'd trip over something or fall over something or something would fall on her. Uh, so she, she never came to the set. Um, she did come to the editing room, though, at the end. When, after, we, after the films were all edited, she felt that, uh, and we showed her the final, what we thought was the final cut, and she, in a way, then decided, or didn't, it was time to go to work again and get rid of stuff that uh, didn't show, it wasn't helping the story or, or the or that I had done wrong, or whatever, was just useless and so forth. And she was in the editing room. Uh, Ismail certainly never, never interfered in what I was doing. But from time to time, uh, secretly, mm -hmm. uh, he would involve himself with some actor or actress, and I would find out that that person had been cast. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I just had to deal with it, but those persons were people like James Mason and Maggie Smith and, and uh, Judy Dench and, and uh, people like that. So uh, who's, who, who's to complain? <laughs> um, so we, we, we were independent, but we were all together for the good of the whole, mm -hmm. which I hope is what the American government is. <laughs> and beyond the three of you, I think there's also a family feel in the, the actors, in the, the producers, the editors. You seem to always work together um, and use the often the same actors in, in several films. And well, in India, that, that, there, was a, there was a real reason for that in India, because um, though English is, uh, the use of English is common in India, it's one thing to use it just uh, in, uh, in life. It's something else to be expressive in, uh, as an actor if you're not used to speaking English. So we had to have actors who, who could be expressive in English, and, that, and there were a few, really, who were at home, that much at home, in English. They, they might have been uh, wonderfully expressive in Bengali or Hindi or something else, but um, they had to be, they really had to feel at home in English. And so we used our Indian actors again and again and again, and, and we had to. Uh, that was less necessary when we started making films in America. And certainly not at all necessary in England. I mean, we're everyone um, fantastically good. A, a number of your Indian films were shot in Hindi as, as well as in English. Well, uh, the Householder was. It, it was shot in, in, we shot two versions of it <clears throat> um, in Hindi, and, which I didn't know. And uh, but I had very, very uh, wonderful help from people, and uh, we shot in, in English because the, the original story of the householder was in English. So, um, that wasn't the question I was supposed to ask you next. <laughs> so I just got fascinated. Um, one of the things that you know has been said about your films is. Um, that there's a total equality in terms of the characters that are portrayed. Um, um, so a critic has said that male and female roles are balanced and given equal weight, gain straight characters of both sexes imbued with the same respect as their hetero counterparts. Um, and it seemed, I mean, when we've been talking about this, that um, a number of characters who are portrayed quite unsympathetically by novelists like Forster and Henry James are, are given rather more compassionate treatment um, in your movies. And so, I just wondered whether you recognize that characterization of, of yourself um, and how that's worked out. Well, I, I, I think you, you've got to be, you have to bring out the essence of the character that, the, uh, that your writer is trying to, trying to convey. You have to do that. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the disagreeable characters are presented fairly sympathetically. Um, 
you, you have to. I mean, first place, uh, actors have, it, it always comes through somehow, their, their own personalities. Um, they're, not, they're not effaced, they don't disappear. And, and for instance, if you're going to cast a villain or a villainess, it's really nice to cast someone who's absolutely charming and wonderful and, and let them do their dirty work. But in, so in a way that you're, they don't stick out like grotesques at the end and, and seem unreal. They've got to seem someone that you would have some empathy for or with and so on, which actually helps the, uh, it's part of the characterization. A lot of villains are people, we all know, people are villainous, but we love them sometimes. So that's that way, in the, I think, in making films. I guess one character who we might think, you know, gets a more compassionate treatment in, in your films um, than they do in the book is um, Olive Chancellor, um, the uh, Vanessa Redgrave character in, in The Bostonians. And, mm. you know, it's such a remarkable performance by Vanessa Redgrave that's kind of incantatory. Um, but I think most people now looking at that film will read the relationship between her and Verena Tarrant as a love story. Um, that might not have been so apparent to Henry James's readers, um, or perhaps even, even to the audience in the 1980s. How do you read their relationship? Well, uh, um, it was a love story. Y yes, she, she uh, Olive, uh, Olive Chancellor absolutely loved Verena. Um, passionately, I mean, crazily almost, and um, but that it it came out of a, a something of a historic background. Um, after the American Civil War, uh, well, in cities like Boston and, and perhaps more on the East Coast, um, many of the young men never came home, and there was a, there weren't very many that many eligible young men, and many women. Uh, formed households together, including Henry James's sister. Uh, she did that, and um, he he observed that relationship. He and his brother William observed it. They they, they saw it. They were not happy about it, uh, but what could they do? And um, uh, but yes, Olive was definitely in love with Verena. But uh, Verena, uh, I think that was not, we don't know how that love might have developed had Basil Ransom not come on the scene, played by Christopher Reeve. That uh, changed her mind a bit. And it fuels his misogyny, do you think? Huh? It fuels his misogyny. I mean, the, he's against the cause of women oh, as well absolutely, as yes. being the love rival. Yeah, he wants them for himself all alone at home, he said right away. And this is one of the films that you, um, you choose to give a different emphasis at the ending um, to Henry James. And rather than giving us Verena running off in tears, we well, have... In the, in the novel, Olive. yes, uh, Basil Ransom kind of rescues her from the clutches of, of Olive and, and uh, the kinds of... Uh, 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 it was sort of a suffragette atmosphere that he didn't like. And, and by this time, Verena had fallen in love with him and he takes her away at the end of the novel, and she's in tears, but he takes her away. And Henry James says, uh, and those, those are not the last tears that she was destined to, to, to weep. Uh, but we thought that was not a very good ending for the, for the film, for a film, this film anyway. And we, we then put, um, She's supposed to speak. She was a public speaker, and she was, she, was, she was speaking about women's rights, and Verena was. And now she'd gone off with, uh, had run away with Ransom, and Vanessa Redgrave, playing Olive, comes out and becomes this tremendous champion and makes a great, great speech at the end about women's rights and, and, uh, and that the future would, you know, provide that, she was sure, and, uh, and that's, that's a, it ends, a, it ends the film on a better note. Yeah. yeah. If you had to choose a character that you thought was a, the worst villain in your films, who would it be, the, the least sympathetic character? Oh, gosh. And I think so many are treated very sympathetically yeah. and very warmly. 
If I, I, don't, I don't know who would be the worst. Uh, several candidates. Uh, I'll come back to that. Yeah, okay. let, me, let, me, let me think about that. Um, I think turning now specifically to Morris, um, the screenplay of which you very kindly lent to the Ashmolean exhibition, um, we were wondering why did you choose to make Morris when you did, just after A Room with a View? What, what led to that next film? Well, when, when Morris was published, after uh, Horser died and then uh, uh, the manuscript was there and, and the executors uh, decided uh, that it should be published, though Forster was never sure that it should be, but it was, in fact, uh, finally published in 1972 or three, something like that. And I read it and I liked it and, and I thought it was, uh, it was an interesting and good, good story, but um, I didn't feel the need immediately to make it into a movie or anything. And then, then we made, uh, our, our first Forster film was A Room with a View. And after we'd made A Room with a View, I then thought, well, I'll read all of the, I'll reread the Passage to India, which I'd read several times already, and I'll, I'll now read the other books as well, some of which I hadn't read. And I reread Morris. And I thought, well, this, th th this has a lot of validity for now. It's very, very relevant for the way uh, people are now and, and uh, their feelings. And, and it was the other side of the coin of A Room with a View. I mean, both Morris and Room with a View are about muddled young people living a kind of lie and not being honest with themselves. And so I thought for that reason, um, that, that was a, a good reason to make it. But I, in, on a second reading, I, I just liked it. I mean, I, I just somehow... Now, not everybody liked it. Um, uh, King's College uh, at Cambridge, when, who were the executors of Forster, when we went to ask for that film, well, in the first place, when we went to ask for a room with a view, they said, why do you want to make room with a view? We have Passage to India, make that. But we didn't want to make Passage to India. We just had made Heat and Dust, and Heat and Dust was also about uh, the, the British and, and, and Indians involved together in the, in the 1920s, and in fact, it was still playing uh, in the theaters in London, so we didn't want to make a passage to India. And there were several other reasons why we didn't want to. What we did want to make was a room with a view. And they said, well, this little novel, I mean, why? And the same thing happened with Morris, but um, was more distressing to them because Morris has never had a very good reputation as a novel. Uh, people who uh, are very particular, uh, uh, crit particular critics of Forster's writing, they don't think that Morris is up to the other books. And maybe it isn't, I don't know. Uh, not the subject matter, but they just didn't think as a book it was as good as the others. And neither did King's College. And they thought, well, if we make that into a film, it might do some damage and some kind of harm to Forster's uh, reputation. But we prevailed, and they led us to it. and, and uh, the film has always been popular, and I think nobody's, in fact, it's made the book more popular than ever. So, um, and that was the reason. I, I, I just, I had a, I had a reason, a, 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 a real reason that was, I, I thought it was entirely relevant. I had some friends who were living this lie. Um, I thought this may have a good effect on them. Uh, it did. Um, so, um, and I liked it. I mean, I yes. just liked the story. And I think making it in exactly the same style as the, um, the heterosexual romance makes a very powerful point. Right. It really establishes well, it had to, egalitarianism. It had to be made the same way. Yes. You couldn't uh, draw back from anything. No, no, no. Wonderful. Well, um, it sounds as if you were quite determined to make it, and I wondered how personal the film it was for you, and what did Merchant Ivory bring to it that another... Well, it didn't bring makers... Ruth. Yes. Why was that? Well, Ruth was busy writing a novel called uh, Three Continents, and she didn't really want to write a screenplay at that point, and she also didn't like the book. She was one of the people who thought, this is not one of Forster's best books. Why are you doing this? Why not make Howard's End? That was what was going through her mind. And when, when the film came out, she said that the book was sub-Forster and the film was sub-Ivory. And well, she did. And, um, but nevertheless, um, 
uh, I wanted to make it, and and uh, I certainly wasn't quite involved in it, and and uh, personally, it meant something to me. I had never had really to live a lie, uh, like you know, poor Clive and Morris and all, but um, I, I felt for them. And yes, yes. I mean, I um, continue. I I remember in just past the Queensland coffee shop, um, in the newsagents when I was a graduate student going in and seeing the Gay Times, which had the cover story announcing the film. And I remember the physical sense of shock that anyone would actually dare make the film. And I also remember reading it thinking, oh, Merchant Ivory. Oh. <laughs> I mean, and it was, it was quite a revelation. Were you aware how, how much it would mean to people, how... how Wonderful the signal well, it would send out at that time. Almost immediately, yes, because uh, almost immediately uh, people came up to me and, and afterwards and, and uh, said how much it had meant to them, and, 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 and they do still to this day. Yes. How? I meet old gentlemen on the street in New York, and they pull me aside, and I want to just tell you that I saw Morris and, uh, back in whenever it was, and it meant so much to me and all this kind of thing. So. Wow. And I'm not joking about that. I was, it was, I was touched by it. I always am. Yeah. I think that's what Forster would have wanted from a I work think, about to, I think. to save souls. But no, I, I, I had no idea that it would, it would have that, that kind of a, um, you know, strength uh, for yes. people and, and, um, and that they would identify so much yes. positively and negatively yes. between their own lives and the lives of the yes. characters. People shown, yeah. You made quite a big change to Forster's novel in the film. Um, you took a, a minor character, Viscount Risley, from the novel, who's quite unashamedly homosexual, and you gave him a subplot um, where he picks up a soldier and is then arrested for that and convicted. Um, and that clearly has a, a really dreadful effect on Clive Durham, Morris's first love. He, he runs basically you have to, towards... You have to, at that time, you're only 10, ten years away from Oscar Wilde. Absolutely. But, but you, that was... Hmm? Go ahead. No, no, please. Actually, that was the idea of Ruth. When she read the script, and she... she you know, it, it's very unsatisfactory in the novel. Clive goes off to Greece, and somehow his head clears, and, and he decides... Uh, uh, he doesn't want to have... Uh, be, be in love anymore with Morris. He wants to find out... He wants to try other kinds of love and live another kind of life, and he's changed. It's just, I am changed, he says. Well, we all know you don't get changed. And, um, and Ruth said, do this. Let's, let's make Risley, uh, uh, make, uh, let, let, uh, Risley should be, it should be a lesson for Clive, what happens to Risley. And Risley tries to pick up a guardsman in a bar, and, and as immediately as the first move he makes on him, and the, the, towards him, the, he's arrested and taken away, tried, and put into prison. Mm -hmm. And that, we thought, was, would be a more powerful deterrence to Clive than uh, just hearing about, you know, I've, I've changed and so on. Change of lifestyle, right. yes. Yeah, it's something that makes no sense in the novel, really. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, that's it's one of the complaints point. about the novel that people always had. I mean, I think that would be more with today. I mean. Modern people would feel that. This is just not true. Yes. In a way, it makes Clive a, a sadder figure mm. at the end, mm. because yeah. I think in, in Forster, he's sort of become unthinking, but he doesn't seem as potentially unhappy yes. you know, with mm. his life as he is at the end of, of your film. Trapped and self-deceived, yeah. yes. Mm. Yes, I think it's... Um, it is... Uh, I think that the ending of the film in particular is very strong in creating that sense of shutting out a life. Um, right. And I'm also struck by how sympathetic you, you portray his wife, who is quite silly and quite naive, but, but I think it's a wonderful performance. You, you feel for her. And she feels as... something, too. Oh, yes. She, there's something going she knows, on. She yes. knows there's something in the air. Yes. She doesn't quite know what it is. So you can see it in her face. From a certain moment on in the scene, she's, there's a face of... Puzzlement and concern and and doubt and she doesn't know quite what mm. 
and then reassurance at the very end when she comes up and, and puts her head against his shoulder and so forth when she's looking out of the window. Um, well, uh, it's all without, she, hmm? all without words. All without words, words. yes. Which, which do you think is more important, the words or the visual? Which matters to you most when you're thinking about a scene like that? Well, if they're the right words. You, yes, naturally. <laughs> if they're the right words, you want the words. But they didn't seem needed in that scene. Oh. And how she says who, uh, she heard him talking in the garden to Morris before Morris goes off. And she heard him, heard her husband talking to someone. And she said, who were, what were you talking about? Who were you talking to? And he said, oh, I was just trying out the words of a speech. Yes. Has huge impact. How much of that scene was created and improvised while you were shooting? Having had a glance at one of those, it was actually plays. longer. Okay, there was, yes. there was uh, Clive and Morris had more to talk. Mm -hmm. They had more of a conversation there in the garden. Um, really, I mean, yeah, that's quite. There was probably a third more. Oh, okay, and the. The very poetic image of shutting the windows. Did that? Um, I didn't see it well, in the script. We, we weren't allowed to shoot in that room because Maria St. Just, who owned that house, was convinced that all the weight of the camera and the crew and everything would, the floors would crash and her best room would be destroyed. Really we were never allowed, and it was a beautiful room. I mean, a marvelous room. And we always wanted, we'd go in there for drinks and things, but we could never shoot in there. And I thought, well, if we put the camera in the door and shoot into the room, then we, have, we can see the actors in there. They're not going to bring the whole house down. And that's what we did. And so I had Simcox, the horrible butler, go and close the shutters. But it, and it was just all, I can't remember why or how. But I mean, anyway, it allowed me to use that room, which says, uh, extraordinary Rococo um, um, plaster, all kinds of wonderful things on the walls, and I, I thought, God, I have to have that in the movie. <laughs> but it's such a powerful poetic image that comes out of those circumstances. Those things, they, they just happen, you know. Well, uh, I, you, I don't think they happen in everybody's have, films. You don't always though. have control of such no. things. Yeah. They just happen. I thought it was. No, it's wonderful. I feel that Morris character Morris he has the kind of model of Forster's Morris but what he doesn't seem to have is that element of kind of self-loathing that Forster's Morris has well he, he yes he does that's why he goes to a, a, hip, a hypnotist uh, to have himself uh, cured of his desires and and, uh, and the hypnotist puts him in a trance tries to does put him in a trance in the first scene, and then he doesn't in the second. The hypnotist kind of gives him, I guess, some kind of hope by talking about the English wishing to deny nature. Yes. Uh, in the end, offers him the idea that, you know, the way he's feeling that his desires might be a part of nature. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an interesting sort of transition, I guess, from the, the hypnotist. Well, when he goes back for his second appointment with the, with the hypnotist, uh, he's now... Uh, already been to bed with uh, the under gamekeeper, and so uh, who's written him a letter? And now he's all worried and and uh, and uh, afraid of what he may be blackmailed and oh God, what's going to happen? All this sort of thing. So it's a different, a whole different mood. Mm. And I think the the line that England has always been disinclined to accept human nature all right. is. I mean, it, that always gets a, that gets a, probably the best, if maybe some, in some cases the only laugh in the movie. It's not the only one in recent showings, but it's the loudest. And I think some people are just shocked at how wonderfully direct it is. If they haven't heard it before, it always has huge power. But in, uh, the English have n never been able to accept human nature. Yes. That, right. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> indeed. I, I think we. <laughs> well, let's not dwell on that. <laughs> No. How happy an ending do you think the film has? Well, it's, for me, it's happy. Uh, the two of them get together, and, but you have to think what's going to happen next. And what was going to happen next was World War I. And what would happen to those boys, those young men? And um, you can't not think of that. 
What do you um, think happens? Hmm? What do you think happens? Well, I, uh, Clive would immediately, he was obviously officer material and would instantly have enlisted and, and uh, gone to France and, and uh, been killed, but not before impregnating his wife with a, an heir. I, that had to happen. And then um, Morris would become a conscientious objector and not want to go to, not, not join the army or anything of the sort. But on the other hand, Alex Scudder wanted to go off and kill the Hun, that kind of thing, and he immediately enlisted and went off, and that put Morris into a, made him feel guilty. So Morris, in time, enlisted and went off too. And they'd go to France, but they survived. They weren't, nothing bad happened to them, and they returned and took up their life. Mm which was one of the things that people objected to who, when the book came out originally, I think, they didn't, they didn't think that these two men, so different in class and, and uh, just as types, would be able to have a life together, would be happy together. And that was, um, would they? I mean, Forster thought, I think, that they would. Mm. But uh, a lot of people thought that they wouldn't. They thought that was fake and phony. And I think in the film, one believes in the chemistry. Well, you want to believe it. I mean, you, you, want to, you certainly want them to get together, and they do. And, you know. But it, they look a convincing couple, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think in, sometimes you've commented that Clive, being so complex and conflicted, is psychologically a, a much more interesting more character. In, well, yes. For, for a director. Well, also, I mean, he was uh, educated, articulate, uh, very witty and sharp, and, and he was a more interesting character in a way. You can't help but think that. But, but you're happy to kill him off very quickly. <laughs> let, let the two, no, the two he, others. But it would have been a hero's death, don't forget. It reminds me of Forster saying that Clive gets annoying after a certain point. What? That Clive gets annoying at a certain point in the story of Morris, but you you can sort of lose him. That was Forster's view. He said, Clive started yes. to annoy me in his terminal notes. Yes, so. I'm sure. No, I think it's, I think that, yes, the pairing at the end somehow carries huge conviction. I think it's very, um, very moving. Um, how many films since Morris have had the same sex happy ending? I mean, thinking about it, there are very few that really show a male couple together with a... a you mean uh, other films yes, made by yes. other people? Well, it's true. They, you, usually there's some awful thing happens to them, yes. to one of them. I mean, they, uh, in, in film after film after film, look at Brokeback Mountain. That's the best example I can think of. Yes, yes. So it's rare when um, a same-sex, a film with a same-sex couple is... Uh, um, has a happy ending. Do you think that audiences are still, even in this day and age, sort of happier to accept gay stories as having tragic or violent endings than? No, I think they'd rather uh, rather have happy endings. Good. <laughs> and yet, call me by your name, um, which is a very similar story in in some ways, um, has a similarly ambivalent, unhappy ending. Um, well, does it? Well, it makes me cry. Um. Well, yeah, but uh, sure. But here's a, a young man, a gifted young man, extraordinarily intelligent and, and, and beautiful and, and age 18 and whatever he was. Um, you knew uh, this was, there would be many, his life would be fulfilled in, in a romantic way, perhaps again and again and again. He was not... Uh, this was not the end of the world for him. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. Mm. And do you think Oliver, in some ways, parallel to Clive at the end of the film? Do you think uh, he is yeah, to Matt? Yeah, yeah, well, that's hinted at in the book itself. Yes. yes. Yeah. There's a certain, a certain uh, unhappiness about his life and a, a kind of sameness as his life and everyone else's, and, and he hadn't really expected that it would be the same as everyone else's. He wanted more somehow, but he didn't get it, and all, all this. Yes. 
That's in the, that's in the novel. But we didn't want to end on all that kind of thing. Or I didn't. Um, I, I think you, you know God's own country. Mm. I think how, how well, that, happy that, an that, ending that, you... That was, it was good. Oh, very happy. I mean, gosh, the, the two guys move into the house with the, with the farmer's parents, and, and uh, nobody says they couldn't or shouldn't. And, yeah. and I, I wondered, what, what will it be like? If, but anyway, but still, it was a happy ending. Yeah. Um, I would be interested in this because I'm a classicist, but you know, the classical statues um, are very visually present in, in Call Me By Your Name. Um, the opening credits, we have uh, Professor Perlman, some of Professor Perlman's slides, and then um, there's that really marvelous scene where they go to um, Lake Garda um, and they watch the bronze statue of Hellenistic right. bronze emerging from um, the waves. Um, and I suppose one way of reading that is just that this, um, this um, male nude is a very sort of powerful image for the same-sex desire. Um, what, but you put that scene into the screenplay. It's, right. it's not at all there in the It's book, not in so. the novel. It's not Why? in the novel. What does and, it mean to you? Well, because I <clears throat> basically I needed to give professor, the professor some kind of uh, work to do. Most of the time, <laughs> he, we didn't know what he was a professor at, really, and, and uh, what, what did he, what, what were his interests? And, and so I made him into a, a, a classical, a classicist, an art historian whose uh, area of interest was the classical past. And at about that time, um, I discovered um, I'd seen them before, but I never really thought of them very much. But I discovered all these wonderful Hellenistic bronzes that had been pulled up out of the sea. And they're not, not just uh, uh, naked athletes and stuff, but I mean, all kinds of uh, extraordinary uh, bronzes that were made uh, uh, usually in the, uh, by the Hellenistic period and a bit after. And they were, I mean, they were Roman very often. And they're beautiful things. and, and uh, there was an exhibition that uh, 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 had been put together by the Getty Museum in California who had a fabulous uh, standing uh, nude. And it was an exhibition that was first in Florence um, and then uh, later at Washington, in Washington. I went to see it and I, I don't know, it affected me. And when I came, it came time to write the script, I, I thought, well, Let's, let's let the professor find the statue, or let him be part of a team that finds the statue. And it was much more, uh, there was much more of that in the film, or, or would have been in the film, but the film was not, they didn't have that much money. But I had underwater shots, and you know, they would approach the statue, the statue would be seen through the water, and the eyes would be open, all this kind of thing, and they would be brought up slowly, and all kinds of things. Uh, they couldn't do all that, but they did have a statue, which was, uh, copied after the one in the uh, Getty Museum, but with the arms changed. I said, if the Getty Museum finds out that you copied one of those statues, you'll get sued. <laughs> so instead of this, do that, <laughs> which they did. And I believe your lawyer is here in the audience to make sure it was okay. Oh, he was, that was a different lawyer. That's very effective. Why did you choose it coming out of the water and not out of the earth? Was there any oh, well, reason just visual? Well, well the, uh, we got in trouble with the Italian press about all that. Uh, such statues were never found in lakes. It was actually shot in Lago di Garda. You wouldn't find a statue like that in, in, in a lake in Italy. You'd only find, you know, probably in the water between Sicily and southern Italy. That's where you find these statues. So they were complaining about that. Um, but I just thought it would be beautiful to, to see the statue in the water and being brought up out of the water. Yes. I mean, just, you can't miss. <laughs> no. It seems a wonderful metaphor for desire being well, brought out into the open. Too. Well, you know, you don't, you don't always think these things. Yeah. <laughs> you just do them. Yeah. Well, create. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. And the, the gesture of shaking the hand of the statue? I, well, I wasn't that? on the set, so I don't, they, they, the two boys thought of that, I suppose. It's interesting, because it's quite a kind of light-hearted yeah, well, moment. Though they've been, remember, they had just been fighting in the car. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
That's why it seems to me that, in a way, the, the, the admiration for the statue is one of the things that helps them to, to kind of draw together again at that, at that point in the film. But I also think um, in some of, some of your earlier films, there's a, it seems to me there's a real interest. I, I think um, maybe you understand how people can have a very strong relation to sort of beautiful objects from the past. So I'm thinking about, you know, your attention to Indian miniature paintings and some of your films that have dealt with some of the kind of passions of collecting. Mm. Um, it, 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 it's there. I mean, it, it, it shows from time to time. And in fact, I mean, I've made, I've made films uh, with, you know, great collectors collecting. Golden Bowl is the best example of that. Adam Verver was like the first American billionaire, and he was over here buying up masses of, of whatever he could find that he liked, and his agents were all out, all over Europe, finding because he wanted to uh, found a museum in, in uh, the city that he came from, from the Middle West, called American City, and so that whole business of collecting was a big a big part of that film. And it was very enjoyable to do. One of the things he liked to, one of the things he's offered is it's a series of Raphael, of drawings by Raphael. And he, he says, I now have five. And you see them. And things of that kind. It was, it was fun to do. I mean, and, and the people uh, who made those drawings, they made superb copies of five Raphael drawings. Um, it's just fun to do things like that if you're interested in art yourself and, and collecting and, and let's say Raphael or whatever. Do you collect? What, what do you I collect? Um, I collect daguerreotypes now. I used to collect Indian miniature paintings. I had a big collection. I don't have it anymore. But I collect daguerreotypes, which I like very much, uh, and photographs right. generally. And I have a big house in upstate New York, which was built in 1805, and really ought to have the right kind of furniture. So I buy furniture which is appropriate for the house, but not as a collection, I mean, just to use. But it's become kind of a collection by now, I suppose. What else? I mean, I've collected stuff all my life, mm -hmm. one kind or another. And Egyptian style pieces. I well, saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Very often, classical statues, and I'm thinking back to Morris, feature as a model for same sex desire. And in the film of Morris, you, you avoid shooting in the classical galleries and concentrate on the Assyrian ones. And I was wondering, it, was there any reason why you, you chose I, I not think to? Forster, no, I think, I didn't think of it in that, that way. And I think it actually Forster, he, he put the, the two boys in front of the, one yes. of the Assyrian bulls, and why not? Yes. I mean, there's such extraordinary things, so. He does, and I, I mean, I have a theory about that. I think that Forster is actually quite anti-Hellenism <laughs> in Morris. You know, mm -hmm. so Clive is the Hellenist, he's called a Hellenist, mm -hmm. and he has this, arid, ultimately unsatisfying because not physically realized view of Greek love, yes. Um, yes. which is sort of defeated within the scheme of the novel. So it's, it's, it's in the Assyrian galleries, but yes. Scudder and is, yeah, yes. is excited yes. by the objects in a way in which I, I, I suspect the Parthenon yes. wouldn't. So for me, the reading of the, um, the scene, you know, the, the inexplicability of Clive going to Greece and turning to heterosexuality, you know, what, of all the places right. to turn to heterosexuality, you know, is part of this. Yeah. You know, that wasn't that. Greece where we were. We weren't in Greece. Right. We were, we, we were in, in uh, Sicily. Those, those <laughs> monuments are suggest the Greek temple yeah. and the theater. They're in, actually in Sicily. Right. We didn't have enough money to go to <laughs> Greece. Sicily is it was a low budget enough. movie. It really was a low budget movie. In the historical context, I think Sicily's Greek enough. You, you have the, the, the two women visit the, the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum in the Bostonians. Right. Yes, they do. They yes. do. And I think that, that has a, a certain classical charge, beautifully done. Um, and we've, we've been talking a little about, uh, a bit about the, the role of sort of desire and sexuality um, in your work. 
do you think an artist's sexuality is integral to their works of art? Do you feel it's, it's something very distinctive? Does it affect or...? It's awfully hard to say. You really don't know. I mean, there's some... I mean, um, your sexuality is... Uh, uh, in, you're involved in everything, everything you do and think in a way, but as for the art that you make, it might, unless you're a writer, or mad to make statues of men or women's naked bodies, that's, that's, what you're, that's your thing. Um, it's hard to say how, I mean, I, I don't think you could, could you look at the Raphael drawings and get any idea about Raphael's sexuality? <laughs> I, I sometimes think you can. Okay. I, think a, I think a Michelangelo drawing well, dwells look, on certain... Oh, that's different. So, yeah, that's a bit. <laughs> that's different. No, I, yes, I mean, forced. Hard, who knows? I mean, it's really hard to tell about these things, I think. And I think forced is. But there's, so a, there's got to be a force of life. Sexuality is a force of life, yeah. and that, that force of life has to go into the hands and eye of the artist who's creating whatever he's creating, or she. Yes, and if forced is labeled a, a, a queer novelist, it can be a very limiting label, I think. It focuses mm. on attention, on respect. Are there any um, contemporary same-sex sort of stories that appeal to you at the moment that you would think of making into? Well, a, 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 a kind of a strange one I'm involved in at the moment, um, uh, which is another novel by Peter Cameron called uh, Coral Glen, and it's set in England in the 1950s. And... Um, it involved two, two of the men, when they were younger, had been in, in, in love, maybe one more in love than the other. But they, they're married, and they, they have their lives, and, and, um, uh, and a young woman comes to, into the story. And I can't really get into it, but it's a novel that was, it was never published in England for some reason. I don't know why. Most of Peter Cameron's books have been published here, I think, but that one never was. But it appeals to me a lot. It's a, anyway, I think it's, kind of, it's, a, it's time for some good, uh, kind of raunchy bisexual uh, films to come along, you know? <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, this I'm has sure been not. left out. No. <laughs> so, so that is what we should look out for. for yeah. well, and, and any other projects that are under? Well, I, I'm, I'm writing a screenplay for Alexander Payne um, based on a story that Ruth Javala wrote, which came out of The New Yorker about two weeks after she died, and he read and immediately liked and got uh, uh, Fox Searchlight to uh, option. And then he went off to make several other films, and years later he came back to this story and asked me whether I'd, I would uh, uh, adapt it. It was like the day after I won the Academy Award. <laughs> or an adaptation. So, well, you don't say no uh, to such an idea. It was Ruth's story, for heaven's sakes, I mean, imagine. And um, uh, so the, the, the fun of doing that. But the thing is, is he didn't want it to be a... Ruth's story was an Indi is an Indian story with Indian characters living in Delhi. And it's about a judge, a very prominent judge, who for years and years has had a mistress, but nobody knew about this mistress. And now he's a bit sick, and he's wondering and worrying about her, and he puts it in his will that the, the family has to look after her when he goes. And so that, that's the setting of the story. Now, Alexander Payne doesn't want to do an Indian film with Indian characters. He wants to do a film in Chicago with American characters who have this situation. Mm. So it's up to me to make that seem normal, and that's what I'm doing. Mm. And you are completely well, moving I'm, continent. I'm, yeah, I'm confident I can oh, I'm, do that. It's, I'm enjoying it. No planned follow-up to Call Me By Your Name? Not from me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I pity any director who has to then 
uh, make uh, Timothy Chalamet look 40 years old. <laughs> or any makeup artist who has to do it. I mean, that would be a terrible thing. I think the ending works pretty <laughs> yes. well. Wonder, it's a, the ending stands right. as it is. It's hard to imagine beyond. Wonderful. In editing, in thinking about your films, how, how important is the final scene? The final scene? Because so many of them seem well, so Well, you never strong. know what's going to be. Yeah, you shoot the final scene, but sometimes you throw them away. You don't want a final scene like that, or the final scene's not that interesting. Yes. Uh, and maybe there's a better way to end the film. Um, yeah, you certainly prepare yourself with a good final scene if you can, but uh, we don't always yes. stick Could to you it. Give us an example of well, a good example, huh? One of your films that uh, where we didn't where we cut off the final scene. Well, it was a film that was made for British television called Hullabaloo over George and Bonnie's pictures, and it had a different ending. And we just mm. dropped it. And at what stage do you decide that? Is well, it when, when, when you see the, the cut of the film for the first time, when it's all put together, um, you might decide that then, or you might do some more work on it and decide later. It depends. And who decided? On that, I think it was Ruth said, why did we have this? Okay. Let's not have this. So... It was my own. I said, okay. <laughs> That's the Supreme Court, you know. Yes. Supreme Court says this, then okay. Consensus. Yeah. Yes. Were there any cases where an ending was changed? Well, there have been or... cases where, uh, in, in my work, where uh, a certain situation that uh, was in the novel and that we then filmed, and Ruth had written the screenplay, and then when she saw, the, she saw the film, she didn't want that sequence. And I'll tell you, it's a very good example of this kind of thing. In The Remains of the Day, there's the whole scene where Lord Darlington, Lord Darlington's stepson, or godson, has come to visit, and he's going to get married. And Lord Darlington wants Stevens, the butler, to tell the, the godson uh, the, fact, the facts of life. But he can't do it himself. He, he thinks he wouldn't be good at that sort of thing. So he sends Stephen out, Stevens out to tell uh, give the facts of life to, to the godson. And it's, you know, it's, the godson is astonished and amazed that, and Stevens can't bring himself to do it. Well, Ruth didn't like any of that. But I loved it. So it's there. Right. <laughs> and everybody else loves it. And they always laugh. They always like that very much. And... Uh, uh, that was a film that was made by Sony, and Sony, one of the things Sony said, be sure you have that scene. Oh. Oh, so they didn't agree with Ruth. Yeah, and Ruth had scripted the scene. She scripted it. it was, yeah, it was in the script. Yeah. It was in the novel, but yeah. she didn't like the scene itself. But I like it. Oh. <laughs> that happens. I mean, yeah. Sometimes the Supreme Court is... Yes. You know, <laughs> Stormy session. Yes. <laughs> I wonder whether we should, yes, um, turn to the floor and ask for questions. If that's... Sure. So I think um, Vicky is getting uh, portable mics um, so that they can run around and if people have a question, uh, someone will find you. There's a hand up there, I can see. Someone over there. Where's the mic? <laughs> Vicky's got one there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and your lawyer. <laughs> and Hello. Hi, thank you very much. Just a, a few final questions before we um, round up. In the Merchant Ivory films, seem very much a matter of, of shared commitment. Um, and one critic's noted that you, you have no fear of commitment, and your partnership with uh, Ismail Merchant, both in films and life, lasted for more than half a century. You've often described your first meeting with Ismail um, very movingly. Could I ask, was it a professional or personal attraction at that first meeting? Well, both. Yeah. Anybody who met Ismail was immediately attracted, man or woman. Yeah. 
uh, he was so ebullient and so uh, charming and so handsome and, and uh, full of life and ideas and, and uh, naturally anyone was attracted. Because the whole so, being. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I know he was a stranger. He came up to me on the steps of the Indian consulate in New York and he'd come to see my film, The Sword and the Flute, which was about Indian painting. And he liked it very much. He just wanted to talk to me. And um, so that's how I met him. That's, that's. Yeah. And who would you say was the handsomest leading man? Had oh, Shashi Kapoor, beyond, okay, <laughs> yeah, beyond anybody. Shashi Kapoor, yeah, the handsomest. No doubt? Huh? Absolutely no doubt? No hesitation? No, no, no hesitation. <laughs> no. Right. Um, your films, I think, have a remarkable range and diversity. And I was also a very unified body, somehow. If you had to name something, a quality, that was the very basis of all your work, what would you say that was? Hmm. Well, this, um, the love of what we were doing to, all together, I suppose, and creating these films. We, we all wanted to make films, uh, mm. and I suppose it's the, the actual activity of it this bound us all together all the time for years and years and years, and, and um, we enjoyed doing it, and, and uh, it nourished that, that common feeling between the three of us, nourished what we were doing on and on, and, and, uh, and, the love and of I show. guess, uh, uh, yes, and I think the films show that, yes. probably. Yes. Point to end on. Thank you very much, Jim. Um,